Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. There is a, a famous, he's, he's now passed away recently, survivor of the Holocaust by the name of Elie Wiesel. I was privileged to meet him several years ago, and, and we began to write back and forth, and we corresponded till not too long before he uh, passed away this last year or so. And when he thinks about the story that we are going to look at today, Genesis 22 is where you want to go, it's the story, the familiar story, and all of these Genesis stories are familiar to us, it's the familiar story of the, we call it the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, the rabbis have a name for it, they call it the Akita. We'll talk about that in a moment. But when Eli Wiesel thinks about the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, he calls it a survivor's story. He viewed himself as a former inmate at Auschwitz-Birkenau as a survivor of the horrible Holocaust. And he looks at this story of this sacrifice, and he calls it a survivor's story. As he thinks about this story, he invites us to notice several things about the main player in the story, Abraham. He notes that Abraham was the first enemy of idolatry. Abraham stood against this mumbo-jumbo of all kinds of gods. He, he says that he was the first angry young man. He was the first rebel, Abraham was, to rise against the established order of things. He says that Abraham was the first to demystify all kind of religious taboos, and he was the first one to suspend all kind of religious no-nos. He says that Father Abraham was the first to reject civilization as he knew it in order to become a minority of one. Abraham always stood alone. He was the first believer, but he's also the first to suffer for his belief. Elie Wiesel goes on to say that, in his opinion, Abraham is higher than Moses. Moses, whose law Abraham followed even before the law was set in stone. Before there was a law, Abraham is greater because he follows the law. He says, Abraham is higher than Adam, our first parent, whose mistakes he was called upon in his life to correct. What I know about this story is I don't like it. I love the Word of God, but there are parts of it I don't care for. To me, this story has an intensity that builds to a point that it becomes almost unbearable when you really think about it. I call it the worst story in the Bible. Genesis 22, if you haven't turned there, God calls out to Abraham. They're on a very close basis, Abraham and God Most High. And God Most High calls out to Abraham one day, by name, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham answers with the first of three, here I am's. And each of these here I am's from the lips of Abraham will draw him deeper 
into difficulty. He begins as God calls, here I am, and God gives him some walking papers, some marching orders. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son, as if Abraham needed to be reminded of that. I want you to take your one and only son, whom you love, and he certainly didn't need to be reminded of that. I want you to take Isaac, whose name means laughter. I want you to take your son, Laughter. We, we read these stories in the Bible, and because of familiarity, we lose touch with some of their meaning. Every time this father called his boy, he called Laughter. Think of that. Isaac is a name to us, but it was a word to Abraham, and he would call laughter, and this child brought laughter into this father's life. Take your son whom you love, laughter, and go into the land of Moriah, hill country, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you, I will fast forward to the end of the story and tell you that this Mount Moriah will one day be the place where they will build the great temple. It will be on that mountain. On this day, it's a barren hillside. Take your son and go to the land of Moriah. And there, God Most High tells his friend Abraham, and what I want you to do there, the reason you're taking your son, is your son is going to be the sacrifice. Times without number, Abraham had performed sacrifice before God. He had taken some of his livestock and offered it, its lifeblood, its carcass, before God on an altar. In fact, if you carefully read the story of Abraham, there are two things he does throughout this land his whole life long. He builds altars and he digs wells. And when somebody knocks those altars over, he rebuilds those altars. And when they fill in the wells, he redigs the wells. And times without number, he has offered sacrifices on these altars of his own making. But this one will be different. It will not be livestock. It will be his own son. I cannot imagine the shockwaves that must have rung through Abraham's consciousness as he absorbs what God, his friend God, is saying to him. Go to this lonely mountain that one day will become a bustling place of activity, but today is kind of a spooky place. And there, all by yourself, I want you to offer your son as a sacrifice. I, I cannot imagine what that father felt. So Abraham got up the very next morning, and the record is he got up extra early, and he got all of the provisions together, and he took a pack animal, and he took some young servants with him to carry some of the stuff, and of course he took laughter, his son. Ahead of time, he split the wood that would be needed to burn the body of his son once the deed was done. And they set off on the journey, and it's the three-dayer. I can't imagine what day one and day two and into day three was like for him. 
He knows what nobody else knows. He was not able to tell his wife. He has nobody else he can talk to. To my way of thinking, I I imagine that Abraham must have been the most alone human being on the planet for those three days. He, He could not talk to Sarah, his wife, with whom he had shared every step of this incredible journey. And never forget, while Abraham gets so much of the gratitude, Sarah was there for every step of it too, but he can't share this with her. He cannot share with his servants because he will shortly on day three dismiss them at the base of the hill. And this is something that he and his son will do alone. He cannot talk with them. He cannot talk with God Most High because God Most High has been very specific and he's not left a lot of wiggle room here and it's not a case where there's negotiating. And so Abraham, I imagine, is very much alone because he couldn't talk with anybody. And for Abraham, for those three days, it's just the most depressing kind of self-talk. It's grim and it's dark. And he marches toward that altar. And as he marches toward that altar, he doesn't have a romantic idea about an altar that we might have. You see, an altar, and Abraham knows only too well, he's built a lot of them And he's tended the sacrifices many times. And he knows that altars are not pretty places. That an altar is a slaughter site. And there you gut the animal. And there you piece it up. And there you allow its lifeblood to sink into the ground. And then, once it's dead and lifeless, you burn it to ashes. There's no sentiment here when he thinks about the altar at the top of that hill. And on day number three, he tells his men to stay behind. And he takes the load of wood off the pack animal and he puts it on the back of his boy. And they begin to climb that hill together. He takes the fire he'll need and he takes the dagger. And they begin to walk to the top of that hill. And again, I can't imagine how alone he must have felt. He knows that each step is taking him to something that's more horrible than he can imagine. And his son has no clue. In fact, along the way, the boy says, Father, (laughs) perceptive kid, I notice we've got the fire and the knife and the wood because he's been with dad at the altar before too. I notice we've got everything we need, but I also notice that we don't have the animal for sacrifice. What are we going to do for a sacrifice, Dad? And he can't bear to tell him. He says, son, God will provide the sacrifice when the time comes. But he knows. He knows. You see... Abraham doesn't have the advantage that we have. We read these stories and we see how it comes out in the end, but he's living it in the moment and he doesn't know. All he knows is he's got a knife and he's been told to sacrifice his son, the unthinkable. God has asked him to do the unthinkable. They get to the top and there they construct an altar out of stones that they find 
And then they place the wood on top of that because the sacrifice gets put on top of that. And now they've made every preparation together that they can make, father and son. And then he takes a cord and he binds up his son. And it must have dawned on Isaac what this was all about. He binds up his son. In fact, that's the name that the rabbis have given to this horrible story. They call it the Akita, the binding of Isaac. Because the tension has built as this story has gone on. The tension builds when Abraham says his first, here I am, to God. And then as they get to the slaughter site to be built, his son says, Father, and he says, here I am, my son. And with that here I am, Abraham must have wished he could be a thousand other places. But here I am. And his son says, we've got the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? And the tension begins to ratchet up with that. You can feel it inside of Abraham. But it builds yet more as Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they walked a little bit further together. And with that little encounter, the tension builds even more. And then they come to the place that God had revealed to him would be the place. And once Abraham looks at that place, the tension must have been un un unbearable for him. And then they build the altar, and then he binds his son. And at that point, it's irreversible. He's bound his son for the sacrifice. And he places him on top of the wood. And it's an unreal amount of tension. As he draws the dagger up to do what he would do with any other sacrifice, he's going to plunge it across his juggler vein and let his lifeblood spill out on the ground. And as he pulls that up, if I were Abraham, I would close my eyes. I can't imagine having to look in the face of your child that you're going to slaughter. Maybe he closed, Abraham, he closed Isaac's eyes. But the knife begins to come down when he's stopped by a supernatural force. Literally, thank God. A messenger is sent to intervene and pulls back his hand and, and, and the voice of God speaks out, don't stretch out your hand against the boy. Don't do anything to him. It's over. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham is attentive to his son, but he's attentive to his God too. It's a good thing. And the sacrifice has stopped. I don't know what you get out of this story. But one of the things I get out of it is sacrificing somebody is a bad idea. But people do it all the time, don't they? People sacrifice friendships. 
We've got a friendship between us, and I make a decision on my part. I'm going to sacrifice our friendship. I don't have a right to do that, but I do that. People sacrifice friendships. They sacrifice marriages. People have sacrificed their parents. People have sacrificed good neighbors to stubbornness. I think we most often see it in parents who sacrifice their children not quite like Abraham, but sacrificed nonetheless. There are parents who sacrificed their children to unfulfilled dreams that they've had. They didn't achieve it, but they're bound to determine that their child will achieve it, even if the child doesn't want to or isn't acclimated to it. People have sacrificed their children to dreams. They've sacrificed their children to careers. How many children grow up with an absent parent who's working all the time chasing the money that's never enough. People have sacrificed their children to their convenience. Isn't that what the song is about, Cats in the Cradle? A father who sacrifices his son. It's a dark song because the son keeps coming back saying, Dad, when are we going to get together? And it's always later, it's always later, it's always later. And at the end of the song, later never comes. Because the son turns it around on the father, who now in his old age says, Son, when can I see you? And he says, Later. It's a sacrifice of that child. People have sacrificed their children to addictions. They've sacrificed their children to an image of what we should be like in our family. And because of what other people expect, that child is sacrificed. Sacrificing your child, it can wear a very friendly face. They can even wear a spiritual face. I know of people involved in lifelong ministry that we would say they have given so much, but they gave their children. They sacrificed their children. That wasn't right. On my part, I've always tried to minimize that impact on our kids. It meant I had to do things early or do things late, or most of the sacrifices I made happened when they were asleep. And that was partly by design. I tried to minimize that. Now, two of our middle girls, <clears throat> they'll complain and they'll gripe. And make a big hairy deal out of a couple times they had to wait in a waiting room at the hospital, but uh, they're just being babies about it. For the most part, I think we spared them. Hope we did. But it can even wear a spiritual face, the sacrifice of your children. I've seen it done. Whatever we sacrifice a child to, though, it's the child that pays the price, isn't it? It's the child that pays the price. Some part of their humanness because of that sacrifice is stunted. They don't grow up. There are hurt feelings, even resentment. But the saddest part is the sadness of thousands of missed opportunities between parent and child because that child was sacrificed to something and life isn't shared and it's not lived the way it was meant to be shared. And the relationship is broken. That's what happens, you see, when you make the mistake of sacrificing somebody else Whatever you sacrifice them to, and that's why sacrificing somebody else is a, a very bad idea. In the case of Abraham, 
his sacrifice. I think that's why God stopped it. That's why God stepped in and literally stopped his hand because it's not a good idea to sacrifice somebody else and that's why God put a stop to it. Now would that sacrifice, had it followed through, had that knife blade come down and found its mark, would that sacrifice have cost Abraham? Most certainly it would have cost Abraham. Because besides being a larger-than-life figure in history and a larger-than-life figure in Scripture and, and the founder of our faith and one that we look back to, besides being all of that, he's a human father. I've seen child deaths, those out-of-order deaths, where the child goes before the parent. I've seen child deaths warp people. I've seen people that have lost a child grieve themselves literally to death. It happens. So the death of his son at his own hands, at a bloody slaughter site, it likely would have affected him. It might have twisted him into something very grotesque and something very different than what we think of when we think of it, Abraham. He would never have smiled again. He would never have laughed again. A madness may have set in because there would be a grief so raw that it would have killed him. Isaac was the child of promise. There's so many promises that would have died with him on that roughly built slaughter site that I don't know if Abraham could have survived it. He would have lost so much. But it would have cost Isaac a lot more. And that's why Abraham could not be allowed to bring that dagger down because... We ought not sacrifice somebody else. You know, there's something else. I think we need to be careful what you sacrifice. You've got to be careful what you sacrifice. And you've got to weigh out what it might cost somebody else. One day Jesus was approached by some religious wise guys that thought they had all the answers. And they approach him, and, and they're asking him about honor your father and mother. And Jesus endorses that. He says, yes, you should. And they're these kind of people that will accept no explanation if they can find even the thinnest exception to the rule. I hate people like that. They're always saying, yeah, but what about? And it's something that would never happen, or something that's remote, they ne never accept any explanation. Jesus explained to them, honoring your father and mother, very good. They said, but what about the tradition of Corbin? They had a tradition among them that said you should take care of your parents in their old age because there weren't homes and there wasn't a social safety net. There wasn't insurance. It fell on the children to take care of aging parents. You, you should take care of your parents in their latter years. That is your obligation. That's what God expects of you. Unless the money that you would have used 
to take care of them, their upkeep, unless you give that money to God, then you are under no obligation to take care of your parents in their own age. They had that tradition they called Corbin, and they threw it in Jesus' face. What about Corbin? And Jesus exploded. He was outraged that they would find a way not to honor their parents. And his outrage is fueled by this notion that you have no right to sacrifice something that will cost somebody else, you see. So be careful what you sacrifice. Sacrifice, though, at the end of the day, think about it, isn't really worth that much. Now stay with me here. This may be a shock to your system. But sacrifice even to God at the end of the day, whatever we might sacrifice to Him, it's not really worth that much. There's a story about King Saul, the first of the kings. Started out well, didn't end so well. And at one point, he's given very clear instructions from the mind of God Himself through the lips of Samuel the prophet who's now in his later years throughout his life, Samuel has been very keen to hear the voice of God and repeat it when it was needed. And he hears from God and he tells King Saul, you are to go and you are to do battle against this tribe called the Amalekites. They are bad beyond description. They are corrupted in every way. In fact, at that point, they're involved in child sacrifice and a number of other things. And it appears that there is no return for that culture. And so God says, I want you, Saul, to take your army and I want you to decimate them. Don't leave one standing. Now we look at those stories and we look for the exception in the story. And I think sometimes we're always trying to improve on the grace of God. And we criticize a story like that. And we criticize a God who would send them out to destroy an entire tribe of people because they were naughty. They were beyond naughty to begin with. But we criticize and we try and improve on the grace of God and say God should not have ordered the destruction of all those people to the last person. He did. But the reason He did... It becomes very clear to us when we see what happened in the failure of Saul. He did not eliminate all of the Amalekites. He did battle against them, but he brought back some of the spoils of war and he allowed some to live. And some of those descendants of the Amalekites that lived, they show up much later on in history. You read the book of Esther. It's the story of the first attempted genocide against the Jewish people, and it's engineered by a man named Haman who had nothing but hatred in his heart for God and the people of God. And he engineered a scheme to wipe out every Jewish person. He was a descendant of the Amalekites. That's what one Amalekite survivor was able to do Can you imagine what an entire nation of those people with that degree of hatred in their heart would have been capable of? And so they were sent, Saul was with his army, to decimate them. He did not. And when he comes back, 
He brings some of the spoils of war that in this particular battle he was forbidden to bring back. He does it anyway, and he gives the lame excuse to Samuel, who is outraged on behalf of God to see that it's been disobeyed. And this polluted stuff has been brought back into the city of God. And upon demanding an explanation, Samuel is told by Saul a weak excuse. Oh, I, I brought that stuff back because I wanted to sacrifice it to God. A good thing, you see. And Samuel tells him, doesn't leave him any wiggle room. You messed up. Because to obey is better than sacrifice. You see, whatever we think we might sacrifice to God, whether it's small or great, time or money, it really isn't worth that much at the end of the day. And that may be a little bit of a shock to us, but it's true because God doesn't need anything we have except our obedience. He doesn't need our stuff. He doesn't need our time. He doesn't need our cleverness. He needs our obedience. That's all he asks for. But the sacrifices that we might present to a God that has everything are not much. I met a man the other day in the locker room at a gym. I was finishing up my workout and I would, my locker and I looked over at him and we nodded at each other and I could just tell this guy is carrying a heavy load. And so we began to small talk. And in the next few minutes, he let me know that he had messed up big. I later found out what he was talking about, but he had let his family down. He had let his church family down. He had committed a great sin. He had let his wife down. He had let his boss down. He said, I'm the guy that used to be the encourager. I'm the guy that everybody depended on to lift them up. And he said, I can't lift myself up now. He said, I spent all last night crying and praying and asking for forgiveness. And so I asked him, I said, so what are you going to do? And he said, well, all I think I can do is to try and prove to God that I, I won't do it again, that I'm sorry. He said, I got, I got to prove to God that I mean it. And it was eating him up. It was eating him up. And the idea that he had to prove something to God was eating him up too. I, the next day or so, was able to talk with him some more and help him see that's not what you need to do. It's not the kind of God we have. He doesn't need you to demonstrate anything. He doesn't need you to sacrifice anything. Because we can't really add anything of value, much value really, to what's already been done. All we can do is just take the yoke of Christ upon us and, and, and learn from Him and walk alongside Him. Because after all, at the end of the day, that's all He asks for, is that we would walk with Him. Your sacrifice doesn't complete His sacrifice. Whatever that man might think he could do to demonstrate to God... It won't complete anything that God has already done, no matter how great a sacrifice he might render to God. In fact, it can become a stumbling block if you're not careful, your sacrifices. 
You know, I've noticed this. People do make great sacrifices for God. I wouldn't minimize that. But I've noticed that those who seem to give up things for God don't seem to notice it. (laughs) I've noticed that. In fact, when I begin to talk to people that have made great sacrifices that I think were sacrifices, sometimes I get a blank stare. I tried it this week. I have a friend that has given up incredible career opportunities to follow Christ, the way he thinks he should follow Christ. And I was thinking of him the other day, and so I prayed for him. And sometimes when I pray for people, I go ahead and call them and tell them, I was praying for you, just to encourage. And so, so I called him, and I, and I said, I want you to know I was praying for you today, and, and I've been thinking about what you do, and I want you to know that I think it's tremendous what you do for God. And I could tell on the other end of the phone, he didn't know what I was talking about. Because he went on with something else. I've noticed this, that those who seem to give things up for God that we would even call great things, they don't seem to notice it. They don't seem to notice it. Just one more thing, only maybe this is why our sacrifices don't really mean all that much. Because there's only one sacrifice that's necessary. Mount Moriah where this ugly incident took place, this slaughter site, that hill later becomes the Temple Mount. You can still see it today in photographs of Jerusalem. That's where the great dome is, that big golden dome that the Muslims have built there called the Dome of the Rock. And the rock that they built it on is supposed to be the very rock that Isaac laid upon That was the slaughter site. Nearby, there's another hill, though. They called it Skull Hill, Golgotha. It's really close. And many years after this incident, there was another son who struggled up that hill with a load of wood, too, with a cross that was laid on his back. And they laid that son down on that slaughter site. And they fastened him to that cross. Now over on that other hill on Moriah, Abraham's hand was stopped. And the sacrifice wasn't completed. Because you can't make sacrifice of another for you. But on this hill, on that day, On Skull Hill, nobody stopped the Father this time. Because the cross, on that cross, God gives Himself in a supreme act of love to Himself. It's Father and Son interacting in love on that cross and in obedience to one another on that cross. And in that act of love, Father and Son together, that is the cross, you and I get caught up in the middle of it all, you see. And Jesus says, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. Into your hands I give my spirit back. 
Now, if Abraham had taken his child's life, it would have left scars. It would have left lasting damage. I personally think that it left lasting damage on his life as it was in Isaac's too. But had he followed through with that dagger thrust, it would have left scars and it would have left wounds. What happened on the cross left some lasting damage too. It left wounds in the body of Christ. On resurrection evening, the disciples are all gathered in a room. Only one of them, Thomas, is missing. But the others are all there and they're frightened and they've secured the room so that they don't get any surprise visitors because their great fear is that the people who crucified Jesus will come and get them and do the same to them. And so they're boarded up in what they hope is a safe house when Jesus appears. <laughs> he's alive and well. And to prove that he's really who he says he is, he says, look at my hands. Look at my sides. Remember? How could they forget? The one member that wasn't there, Thomas, he is there a few days later when Jesus makes a return visit. And now they're all there. And Thomas has been telling the other fellows all week long, I don't believe you saw what you saw. I won't believe unless I can put my hands in his hands and my hand in his side. Then I'll believe. It was quite a boast. And when Jesus walks into that room, this time Thomas there, he does exactly that. He invites Thomas, put your fingers in those. Put your hand all the way in here. And that'll tell you that I'm real and that it really happened. It left scars, you see. What happened on the cross left scars. There's a reason why it's recorded that as Jesus is ascending from the earth, 40 days of resurrection appearances are capped off by gathering 500 plus followers on a hillside and he moves bodily into heaven, into the presence of the Father bodily and the last thing they remember seeing Forget the pictures of him rising like this. The last thing he does is he bends over and he goes like that. So that the last image they have is of those hands. We're told that a day is coming when all of humanity will look upon him whom we have pierced. So those marks are still there. Those marks will be there forever. But only one sacrifice was necessary. Abraham and Isaac are both survivors in this story, aren't they? But there's a great responsibility that falls on the shoulders of survivors, and it's a survivor's duty to tell what they know. Because of mercy, because of the love between Father, Son, and Spirit. A love that explodes out and, and a love that includes you and includes me. That means that we are also survivors, you see. Because we were bound once. And we were facing death. But Christ has set us free. Grace has caught our falling souls. 
And you and I survive because Christ took our place. And now we're survivors. And it's the duty of survivors to tell what they know. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.